Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and uh, I'm teaching today part four of the series, Knowing Who We Are in God. There's actually six parts, so I'll be teaching at the same time of day, tomorrow and Saturday. The first four parts of this, uh, the first three parts and today's part, part four, is focused mostly on who we are in God personally, individually. The next two parts, tomorrow and Saturday, will be focused on the collective body of Christ. Now, we've talked about the church uh, off and on during the first uh, three and also today. Um, And we will be talking about individuals today. And we will be talking about individuals some in the next two parts. So you can't separate the church from the believer, the child of God. You can't separate the child of God from the church. They are one and the same, just two completely different dimensions of relationship with God. And we need both of those dimensions in our lives. We have God in us individually as born again children of God. But that also puts us into the body. And Paul said we are members in particular of the body of Christ. So we are not just individually belonging to the Lord, but we are collectively belonging to the Lord. And anyone that's choosing one of those or the other, rather than participating in both of those equally, has significantly missed the point of the word of God. And uh, so... This uh, lesson or this part today, lesson number four, part four of the subject of knowing who we are in God, uh, we're going to go somewhat of a different direction than we have uh, mostly in the first three parts. Uh, the title of today, if you want to call it a title, the focus, and we will go into this from many different perspectives is the Lord is a quote-unquote, and I'm quoting scripture here, man of war, and the church is his army. And uh, <clears throat> I'll read you scriptures, and I've got a lot of scriptures to read, so I will move through the ones quickly that uh, I'm able to, and the ones the Spirit wants to focus on, we will spend a little time on them. Deuteronomy chapter 20 And verse 4 says, For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now there's a mouthful in that verse. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And of course the biblical principle is this, is that which applied naturally in the Old Testament in principle, applies spiritually in the New Testament. So the church was a nat- of the Israel was a natural nation and therefore a natural army. The church is a spiritual nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, but it also is a spiritual army. Israel fought against uh, flesh and blood enemies. The church is not dealing with flesh and blood, even if it feels like it or appears as though we are. The word of God makes it very clear that humans are not our foe. Even if they're standing against God and who we believe and what we believe, uh, they are not our 
enemy because the word of God says that they are being influenced by, have come under the influence of the adversary. Now, of course, that statement right there would make a lot of people very angry. I'm sorry. I can't take it back. It's Bible. And I believe the Bible. End of story. And if I'm supposed to choose between what the Bible says and what any man says or what society says or any government says, I am choosing the Bible regardless of the cost to me for making that choice. Because heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word, Jesus said, shall never pass away. Because his word is forever settled in heaven. And if I have a choice I have to make, I'm choosing the word every time. I'm choosing the word over anybody's doctrine, any church or organization's theology. Uh, I don't care how much, how many degrees a, uh, a scholar has. Uh, they don't impress me if they contradict the word of God. I was asked just the other day, uh, this brother said to me, well, I've read uh, several stories about uh, near-death experiences or life after death, people coming back from the dead, and some of them are very far out. Uh, Do you believe any of these? I said, I believe every one of them that does not contradict the word of God because I don't care any experience anybody's had. If it contradicts the word of God, I reject it. Now, I'm not calling them a liar. They may have experienced it, but that doesn't mean it was God causing them to experience it. So I'm not, I'm not fussing with whether or not they actually had the experience. I am disagreeing with the source of the experience and the conclusions that are drawn from the experience if it's contrary to the word of God. Now, here's a, here's one of the most amazing a passage of scripture, and it's actually the passage from which one of the verses that I took the title of this particular part four of the series, Knowing Who We Are in God. Exodus 15, verse one, this is after the fact. This is after uh, God has delivered the the uh, Hebrews from Egypt. This is after the parting of the Red Sea. This is after the Red Sea has come crashing down upon Pharaoh his and his entire army. And on the other side of the Jordan, after they have been delivered from a certain death because Pharaoh and his army intended to make a point against them for daring to leave slavery in Egypt, uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Here it is. Verse 3, for Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captives also are drowned 
in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of his nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind, and the sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O God? O Lord, among the gods, who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Thou stretchest out thy hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength under thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold of the inhabitants of Palestina. The dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab trembling shall take hold upon uh the mighty men of Moab trembling shall take a hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm. They shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over. The Lord, O Lord, till that, till the people pass over, which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in. In the sanctuary, O O Lord, which thy hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. The horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Moses attributed all this to the fact that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The thing you and I need to remember is this. Israel, the Hebrews, were uh, had been in Egypt 430 years. The first 30 years or so, they were guests because they were the relatives of Joseph. And Joseph was appointed the number two man in Egypt by one Pharaoh. But then the Bible says uh, that Pharaoh died and there arose a Pharaoh that didn't know uh, Joseph. He didn't know Joseph's uh, uh, uh power his uh the dream he interpreted and all of that he didn't know all of that and that's when they became afraid of the the hebrews and how fast they were uh, multiplying and they made them slaves for 400 years 400 years that's over that's almost twice as long as the united states have been in existence at all they were slaves they were in egypt 430 years and they were slaves 400 years but in God's timing, when it was time, God brought them out with his mighty hand and he demonstrated his power. It Sometimes it appears that God's patience is God's neglect that, or that God's patience is actually speaking of God's weakness. But you have to understand something, that God has a plan and there's a timing to his plan. And it might not be our timing, but it's his timing. And in his timing, he will fulfill his word. 
Acts chapter 7, I believe it's verse 17 or so, somewhere in there. The, the Bible's talking about the, 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 uh, the Hebrews in Egypt. And it says, and when the time of the promise drew nigh, they began to multiply. The Hebrews began to multiply and it really intimidated and terrified the, uh, the Egyptians. Because the time of the promise drew nigh. There was a time. There was nothing that Israel could have done to have left Egypt before that time. Why? Because God had prophesied to Abraham that his offspring would go into Egypt as prisoners or slaves and be there for 400 years. God foretold that in advance. In advance. So he can't violate his words. He's not going to violate his word. So that's why the Bible says uh, that men in Second Peter chapter 3 would talk about the slackness of God, that God is delaying or that maybe he can't do what he said he was going to do. You hear me right now? He is in absolute control and nothing is late. Everything is in his timing. Everything. The question is, are we going to be submitted to him? And walk in his timing and do his will. Are we going to give ourselves to him without reservation so that in his timing we can be the part of his plan and purpose that he has called each of us individually to be and the body of Christ to be collectively? <clears throat> God made some promises to Israel, but when they chose to not live according to his word, he, uh, he had to do some other things. Now, I don't know if it was the absolute plan and purpose of God that the people, everybody over 20, uh, technically it would be everybody over 18 who left Egypt because it was about two years later when uh, when the, the curse was made that everybody over 20 would die in the wilderness. It had been about two years or so since they'd left, they'd crossed the Red Sea, and then they refused to go into the promised land because it was full of giants. And everybody over 20, which meant they would have been 18 leaving the uh, promised land or leaving Egypt, uh, they were cursed. They were going to live there. It's, it's approximately, if I remember correctly, and I may be off here, my memory may be off, but that if you were walking, uh, traveling like they were tra- traveling from the Red Sea to Kadesh Barnea where they, cro- they were going to cross into the promised land across the Jordan River was about a three or four month trip. They took two years to do it because God was preparing them. But when they didn't do that, they wandered in the wilderness 40 years waiting for everybody over 20 to die. Everybody that was over 20 at the time of the curse or the judgment of God upon them for their unbelief died. Except, of course, uh, Caleb and Joshua. Everybody else died. So that 40 years in the wilderness, if it was the will of God, then it was the, it was God's, uh, then it's own God that they, that they didn't believe. But they didn't believe. They didn't believe. Except for everybody over 20, except for two men, did not believe. And so they had a 40 year delay in the wilderness. That's a desert, in case you're wondering what that means, wilderness. And so, God has a timing. God has a plan. Now, as I taught yesterday uh, in part three, uh, 
the Lord has sworn with an oath what he's going to do in these last days before the rapture of the church. He's sworn with an oath. And according to the proportions and the descriptions of what he swore to do, that every family on earth would be blessed with the blessing of Abraham, which, of course, the blessing of Abraham is receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith. The Gentiles receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith. Every family on earth and every nation on earth having an out, uh, an outpouring of the Holy Ghost that would get everybody in that nation's attention. Uh, according to Paul, there wasn't anybody in Israel that didn't know about Jesus in those three plus years. Nobody. Some were against him because he was mess, messing up their playhouse. Others were for him and others tried to be neutral. Well, I'm here to tell you, you can't be neutral when it comes to God. There is no m- middle ground. It's not even a no man's land. Because by not choosing, I am choosing to not choose him. By not, Jesus said, if you're not with me, you are against me. If you're not gathering with me, you're scattering abroad. There's no such thing as standing back watching somebody else gather. There's no such thing as not really being with him, but not being against him either. That's only man in man's way of trying to justify not giving themselves completely to God. Well, here we are. <laughs> here we are. The Lord is a man of war. There's another way we can look at that. There is a title that's used frequently, especially in the Old Testament. Lord of hosts. And the word host there in the Hebrews is armies or heaven's armies. He is the supreme ruler. The uh, commander-in-chief of heaven's armies. One of the most notable places where this phrase is used is in uh, uh, when David came out to uh, uh, see the art, to bring his brother's uh, victuals from his father. And he heard uh, Samson, uh, Samson or Goliath, uh, not Samson, but Goliath making his uh, threats against the armies of Israel. And uh, David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? Uh, and so David went out and represented the entire army of Israel and went out against Goliath by himself. And so First uh, Sam, Samuel 17 verse 43 says this, And the Philistine said unto David, Am I dog that thou camest to me with staves? And, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said unto David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David, the young man, he was approximately 17 years old at the time, to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee. He didn't even have a sword. All he had was a sling and five stones. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day under the fowls of the air to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, 
and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the, the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in the forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face on the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood before upon the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And I'm not reading further, but the armies of Israel then pursued the enemy. But the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Now, if the God of Israel was the Lord of hosts and the guard of their armies, then the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of hosts in the New Testament, and he is the God of the armies of the kingdom of God. Simple biblical interpretation that cannot be gainsaid. First Chronicles 7.24 says, let it be even, let it even be established that the name, thy name may be magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And let the house of David thy servant be established before thee. Psalms 47, 4 says, And as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Psalms, Isaiah 51 says, But I am the Lord thy God that divideth the sea whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. And in the New Testament, the church is the spiritual Zion. The church is the spiritual Zion. Isaiah 54, which is a very short uh, trip to go from it applying to Israel to applying to the church. Verse 1, sing, O barren, that did, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. That's military terminology right there. And thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. For thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts, is his name. And thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. And skipping down to verse 17 in that chapter, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. And then, 
One more place, if I could. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, Baruch, the son of Nerjah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power, and stretched out and stretched out arm, and there's nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great... The mighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Great in counsel, mighty in work, for thine eyes are open up, uh, upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and has made thee a name as at this day, and has brought forth the people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonder with wonders and with a strong hand with a stretched out arm and with great terror and has given them this land which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey Jeremiah 52 verses there 33 34 thus saith the Lord of hosts the children of Israel the children of Judah were oppressed together and all that took them captives held them fast they refused to let them go their redeemer is strong the Lord of hosts is his name he shall thoroughly plead their cause that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the habitants of Babylon and then uh <clears throat> Oh, I'm going to skip down here to Zechariah, uh, to, to Malachi chapter one, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the men, the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm saying to you today, whatever God has been, he still is. Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God has ever been the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, he is still the Lord of hosts and the Lord of armies. He is the Lord of the angelic armies. He is the Lord of the armies in the earth called the church. His armies. He made it very clear from the founding of the church that the church is at war supernaturally in the earth against the principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and wicked spirits in the atmosphere. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I have heard well-meaning people say, well, that means that God is going to protect us and gates of hell can't defeat us. There is no time in the history of man in God's kingdom or man's kingdom, that anybody's ever used gates as an offensive weapon, ever. And it is a perversion of the word of God to take that verse and that statement right there and make it defensive when it is one of the most offensive, not offending, but offensive-minded verses in all of the Bible. Except when the church isn't attacking the gates of hell. Except when the church is leaving the gates of hell alone and just trying to survive. And I know there are 
brethren, even some brethren of mine that don't believe in spiritual warfare. I don't know what Bible they're reading. How many hundreds of verses you want me to supply? The Bible is full of it from Genesis to Revelation. We're in conflict with the adversary. Well, the devil's been defeated. Really? Then tell all the backsliders that they're not really backslidden. Tell all the lost they're not blind. Tell all the people of God that are trying to, to, to be a faithful servant of God and live, sa- live saved and go to heaven about all these struggles they're having. They're just natural struggles. Really? Really? <laughs> not according to the word of God. Not according to the word of God. Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, if we don't attack the gates of hell, they're prevailing by default. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to these offensive weapons. Weapons for offense. To go on the offensive. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. How about Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Or the Greek is literally against wicked spirits in the heavenlies or the the atmosphere. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That's not a defensive statement. Every soldier on the offensive has to stay on his feet or risk being killed. So the armor of God protects us so that we can stay on the feet and continue to march forward in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not warring, my friend, it's because you've already surrendered. Surrendered and settled. God have mercy on any part of the body of Christ that has settled for where they are and what they've got. I'm sorry for every person that has died of COVID. I'm sorry for every person that's gotten sick from COVID. But let me tell you something COVID has done. It has really made it very clear who was complacent and comfortable when all of that that made them complacent and comfortable was stripped away. I'm not talking about just the world. I'm talking about the church. People that are comfortable just following their church calendar and just living by their church calendar. And, and that defines their, 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 their Christianity. Just, just dotting your eyes across the T, T of all they planned, whether it was God's will or not. How many planning sessions do we have that weren't initiated by prayer, that weren't saturated with prayer, that weren't directed by prayer, and that weren't, and the results of the planning weren't empowered by by prayer? Every bit of planning that was done by the flesh that God gives no credence to whatsoever. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Why in the world would we wrestle against flesh and blood? Why? Why? Because we're at war. The war was declared in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, 
because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field and upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, that doesn't apply to us. Then why did Paul say in Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Why in the world would Paul make that statement if it has nothing to do with us? He spoke that to the church of the living God. And there's only one church and it began on the day of Pentecost that is leaving here at the rapture. And the time frame that any of us are a part of any portion or uh, uh, part of the church is still just one church. Just one church. The church is still just one church. Born of the day of Pentecost, leaving here at the rapture. And he said to the church then, and it still applies to the church now, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, which is a direct reference. A direct reference. To the seed of the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. That's the crucifixion of Christ. And of the seed of the woman bruising the head of Satan. That's happening. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three and four says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them, which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God should shine unto them. You make your best intellectual argument, get your debate shoes on and get your debate arguments out. You can win arguments, but you're not winning souls with arguments because you're talking to people that are spiritually blind they jesus said they have eyes that see not they have ears that hear not they have hearts that don't perceive therefore they don't believe and they're not converted and they're not saved those are his words who's going to pray this off of themselves how are they going to be free so they can be saved well let's let the bible answer that i didn't ask your opinion i'm not giving you mine Acts chapter 23, beginning verse 16. At midday, O king, I saw in the, in the way a light from heaven. Paul is giving his testimony to the king. Above the brightness of the sun, shining about round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. Deliver thee from thy pe- from the people, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. For what purpose? Again, rise upon thy feet, I've appeared to thee for this purpose to make thee a minister and a witness, both of the things that you've seen and things you're going to see. And I'm going to deliver you from the people, but I'm going to send you back to those people I'm delivering you from, from over and over again for this purpose to open their eyes, not naturally, spiritually, 
to turn them from darkness to light, not naturally, spiritually, and from the power of Satan unto God, not naturally, spiritually, so that for this purpose, to this end, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And I said it yesterday. How many times do we pre, do we sow seeds of the gospel upon ground that's never been plowed? And that's what our prayer and that's what spiritual warfare does. It breaks up the fallow ground. Intercessory warfare, intercessory travail. That breaks up the fallow ground. It prepares the seed, the ground for the seed. Otherwise, we're sowing seed on ground that's like concrete. Very, very little even grows from that. The problem is, we've had just enough to grow. That we've considered, that's what God's doing. That's it. Okay, that's it. Really? You remember when God called, uh, no, what was his name? <laughs> the guy with the 300, whatever. Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. He called him. Where did the angel find him the my, and call him the mighty man? He was threshing a handful of wheat behind the wine press. Why? Because the wine was harvested and uh, walked on to get the juice out of it in a completely different season and place than the harvest is threshed, winnowed, and then collected and sifted and then made bread out of. Get, uh, not Gideon. Was it Gideon? Maybe it is Gideon. Yeah, Gideon. That's it. Yeah. Duh. Okay, Gideon. Gideon was pressing, was, was, was threshing a handful of wheat. Why? Because the Philistines came and would steal their harvest before they could reap it. So his family was starving. So he managed to get a handful of wheat. And he was threshing that little bit to make a little bit of bread to feed his family. And God found him there. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Oh, Gideon, thy mighty man of valor. And there we are. We're mighty men and women of valor in God's armies. And we're settling for a little bit of wheat being threshed. And I believe I'm thankful for every single soul that repents. I'm thankful for every single soul that's baptized in Jesus' name. I'm thankful for every single soul that's baptized with the Holy Ghost. I'm thankful for every single one of them. But the world's going to hell. What are we going to do with that? Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, after coming out of the wilderness, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the, the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. This is a wonderful, wonderful scripture to study in its original languages. But this is not speaking about natural situations here. You can go to heaven poor. 
You can go to heaven brokenhearted. You can go to heaven as a prisoner or a slave. You can go to heaven blind. You can go to naturally blind. You can go to heaven bruised. These are all spiritual conditions. And the spirit of the Lord is on him to set him free. And that was, that was the ministry of, of Christ on earth in those last days. And he kept reading to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down in the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So the fulfilling of Isaiah 61, one started that day, according to Jesus' own words. That was the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the old covenant. What is the ministry of the body of Christ at the end of the new covenant? Is this not our ministry? Not growing a crowd? Not planning a, an agenda? But seeing the poor have the gospel preached to them. When, when John the Baptist sent the messengers from the prison and said to Jesus, are you the one we're looking for? Is there another coming? Jesus said, go tell John what you've seen. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb are, are, are speak, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the uh, lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised. And in that same category he put, and the poor have the gospel preached unto him, unto them. Well, let me tell you what, that is just as much a miracle day as it ever been. Because how many churches are really trying to reach the poor sincerely? It's a miracle. Because we're, we're wanting the guy with the goodly ring, according to James, with the money. We give him a seat. We tell the poor, go, go stand over there. Yeah. This is the ministry of the last day church to this world. It's not the ministry of the pulpiteers. It's the ministry of the body of Christ to the earth. You imagine what would happen if we stop having specialists come in to perform their giftings in front of us so we can be wowed and, and awed. And when every believer went out and started laying hands on the sick and seeing them recovered, you can you imagine the impact that would have upon this world? Can you imagine the impact? Well, for those that are believers, that is coming very soon. The Lord's going to make that happen right there. He's going to make that happen. The scripture says we are soldiers in this army. Second Timothy 2 verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please the one who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Are you chosen to be a soldier? Are you entangled with this life? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God every day? Or are you seeking all your list of wants and desires and give me this and give me that and do this and do that? There's a dividing line coming down through the body of Christ. He's dividing the participants from the spectators. 
Some are going to end up in the stands and at best they're going to get to cheer the team on because it's not going to happen for them, to them, or through them. But then there are those who are going to give themselves completely to the Lord. And he's going to use them to do things that are unimaginable to them at this moment. And he can't tell us what he would do because we wouldn't believe it. It'd be too fantastical to us for that to happen. Psalm 46, verse 10 said this, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. How's that going to happen? Judges 3, verses 1 through 5 says, Now these are the, listen to this carefully. Listen to this. Now these are the nations which the Lord left. God didn't drive all the nations out of the promised land. Now these are the nations which the Lord left. For what purpose? To prove Israel by them. Even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. He left some of the enemy in the land. To prove those that were growing up in the land that hadn't had never been in Egypt. Did not spend 40 years in the wilderness. And had not done any of the fighting to secure the promised land. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them. Even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them to war. At the least such as before do nothing thereof. Namely five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians. And the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon. Unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And God has left the enemy and his children in the earth to prove you and I. Are we going to lust for the things they have? Are we going to covet to be able to do the things they do? Are we going to seek after their perverted pleasures? Or are we going to separate ourselves, not, not from reaching them and loving them, but from following them and their gods? Are we going to war against those things that keep them into bondage? Or are we going to become under the bondage of the things that they're bound by? This is the word of the Lord. That's exactly what's going on this year. God is revealing who has liberty and who is bound. Because those were liberty, they just adjusted. They just kept on going straight forward. They kept on preaching, kept on praying, kept on believing. Those that are bound, we don't know what to do. And we don't know how to do it. Oh, oh, God help us. We don't know what to do. All of our plans, everything we know how to do has been eliminated. How how much repentance is going on? No, there's been a whole lot of blaming God going on. How could you let this happen to us? To prove us. To test us. To find out who's on R&R or who's in the army. There is no R&R this side of heaven. Psalms 144 verse 1. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. 
My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. Psalms 18. This is a little long reading, but this is some amazing stuff. For that, this is starting with verse 27. I wish I had time to read it all. All of Psalms 18. For thou wilt save the afflicted people, but will, but will bring down high looks. For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God I have leaped over a wall. As for my God, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried or tested. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. For who is God save the Lord, or who is a rock save our God? It is God that girdeth me with strength that maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon the high places. He teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by my arms. Thou hast also given me the shield of my, thy salvation and thy right hand hath holding me up and thy, thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me that my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn again till they were consumed. I have wounded them that were not able to rise. They are fallen under my feet. For thou hast girded me with strength under the battle. Thou hast subdued under me those that rose up against me. Thou hast also given the necks of mine enemies that I might destroy them that hate me. They cried, but there was none to save them. Even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. Then did I beat them small as the dust before the wind. I did cast them out as the dirt in the streets. Thou hast delivered me from the strivings of the people. Thou hast made me the head of the heathen. A people whom I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they shall obey me. The strangers shall submit themselves unto me. The strangers shall fade away and be afraid of their close places. The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock. And let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God that, that avengeth me, and subdueth the people unto me. He delivereth me from mine enemies. Yea, thou liftest up me up above those that rise up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore I will get, will I give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen and sing praises unto thy name. Great deliverance giveth he to his king and showeth mercy to his anointed, to David and to his seed forevermore. Now that sounds horrible to a natural mind reading all that. You go horrible. No. He's rejoicing in the fact that all these people wanted to destroy him and God gave him victory against great odds which were against him. Well, that's true naturally, but we're not fighting people today. But all of this applies to us spiritually if we will simply trust in our God, the Lord of hosts, the God of war against the powers of darkness in this world. Thou believest there's one God? Thou doest well. The devil also believes and trembles. He trembles in the face of those that believe there is one God. He doesn't tremble in front of anybody else. So he's called us to fight. First Timothy 6, beginning with verse 11. And thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, God and his faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. 
lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. The king, singular of kings, plural. The Lord, singular of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And then at the conclusion of Paul's life, in the last chapter of Second Timothy, he wrote this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. That is a military term. Stand guard. Stand watch. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry for I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand I have fought a good fight I have finished my course I have kept the faith wherefore is laid up for me a crown of righteousness the Greek word there for crown is not diademia which is crown of royalty this is the crown Stephanos which is a victor's crown that was first given in the Olympics to those that one in the games. It is a victor's crown. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown, a victor's crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto them also that love his appearing. So we, we have to get prepared to fight. How many of us have never even studied what the armor of God's all about? But I'm going to read to you several places about the armor of God. How important it is. Romans chapter 13, 11 and 12. And that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You don't put on armor for show. You put on armor to fight. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 4 through 7. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions and necessities and distresses and stripes, in imprisonments and tumults and labors and watchings and fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by the love, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the right armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses four through nine. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that the, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all the children of light, the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch, stand guard and be sober. Because sleeping on watch is a capital offense in wartime, and this has been war since man sinned in the garden. And that war is not going to be completely finished until the great white throne judgment. 
we are at war. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. That doesn't mean don't be drunk. It means to think clearly, to not be stupored in our minds by the lust of this world and the pleasures of this life. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain, to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've read part of this already, but here it is again. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. What? So we can just go to church services? And again, I believe in the body of Christ coming together to worship and to fellowship and to be taught and to be trained and to be sent out. I believe in that. But that's not what some of us believe in. We believe that's all we're supposed to do. And if we'll just do that, we'll be saved. Sorry, I don't believe that. I don't believe you're saved because you go to church. I believe you can be lost because you don't go to church. Not because you don't go to church. But because whatever that is in you that's not surrendered to God. That tells you, I don't need all that. I can do this my way. Well, your way's not going to save you. <laughs> Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against power, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against wicked spirits or spiritual wickedness in high places, or spiritual wicked spirits in the in the atmosphere. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil dead, having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith you shall, you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, or the rhema of God. And colon at the end of verse 17. And take this and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Colon. The grammatical rule of the colon is what follows the colon, expounds upon or explains what precedes the colon. So we just did all of this putting on the armor of God. For what purpose? Verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all, all saints. The arena of spiritual warfare, first and foremost, is prayer. It's not putting in a little prayer time. It's not praying my prayer time. It's not, it's not my filling up my prayer time with, with, with uh, vain repetition. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. No. It is fellowshipping with the Lord and then with the Lord. Going into a dimension of ministry and prayer that does the will of God and speaks and prays for the will of God to be done, for the kingdom of God to come, for the name of Jesus to be sanctified in the earth, that does warfare in the spirit to see eyes open spiritually and the blindness taken away spiritually and them delivered from the power of darkness, the power of Satan under the, under the kingdom of God. So that when we sow the seed, the seed will germinate and produce fruit. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Prayer in the Spirit. This is not talking about religious prayer. 
This isn't talking about got you got some list you're praying down. No. This is talking about praying in the Spirit. So the Spirit of God can pray through us. And here it is again. Praying always with all prayer and supplication and watching. Standing on guard. Thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, Paul said, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am, I am an ambassador in bonds and therein, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, how do we do that? First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, This charge I committed to thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies, that went before on thee, and what are those prophecies? They're promises. A prophecy is a rhema. A promise is a rhema. That thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Well, what are they? The sword of the Spirit, the rhema of God. Almost all of the armor of God is defensive to protect the soldier on the offensive. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, Girdle of truth, feet shod with preparation of gospel of peace, shield of faith, and now I've got my weapon here. The rhema of God. This charge I committed unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare. If you're not, if you're not using the promise, the promises of God, the prophecies of God, if you're not letting the Spirit of God quicken the Logos to you for you to speak that Logos, some call it praying the Word. I'm not in favor of just repeating scriptures and prayer and calling it prayer. But I am in favor of the Holy Ghost quickening me to pray and speak certain things that are written in the Word, which when the Holy Ghost quickens the Logos for me to speak it, it becomes Rhema. And I speak that into the spiritual atmosphere of the earth. And that Rhema comes against the adversary. The sword of the spirit. The rhema of God. I, th this charge I committed unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies that which went before on thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare. Well, what does that mean? Second Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 6. For we walk by, we, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But mighty through God to the, to the pulling down of strongholds. What strongholds? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Because the number one battleground of spiritual warfare is in the mind of the warrior and in the minds of those, the warrior is trying to set free from spiritual captivity. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. We have weapons to cast down imaginations, pull down strongholds, Every high thought, every high opinion of man that exalts itself against the word of God. We have the, we have the power to come against that and defeat it. Not in debate. Not in human reasoning. But in the supernatural. 
Why? Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, they're foolishness unto him. So if I naturally appeal to lost people, it's going to sound like I'm talking foolish stuff to them because they can't see it. They can't understand it. That rhema becomes the word of God's authority. We are the conduits of his authority and power. That's how he uses us in spiritual warfare and in ministry. If I don't learn how to be used of God in prayer, in speaking words of authority, uh, they'll never work for me when I'm in ministering to somebody. They'll never work because I won't have any confidence in them. Mark 11, verse 20. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remember, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Jesus didn't use profanity. That's not what this is talking about. He simply spoke to that fig tree and said, you're never again going to bear fruit. No man's ever going to eat any fruit off you again. That's all he said. He didn't swear. He used profanity. But he spoke negatively to that fig tree and it cursed it. It killed it at its roots. Master, the fig tree which thou curses withered away. Jesus answering saith unto him, have faith in God. Now he's about to define what faith in God is. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore, I say unto you, therefore, I'm coming back to that word, therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. He just equated prayer with speaking to the mountain. He equated having faith with speaking words of authority to the mountains in our lives and in the lives of others. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. You have mountains in your life? God's allowed every one of them. They're not his will, but every one of them is a test to see if you're going to believe him and demonstrate his power so that not only you can know that God is able to do that, but because of the loss so that they can see and have the word of God confirmed to them. That's the will of God. In a parallel passage here, Matthew 21, 21, Jesus said, Jesus answered and said to them, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this, which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, be thou cast in the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Now, the word ask there doesn't just mean, please, Lord, give me something. It is to require, to invoke, to speak. So when I am speaking the words of authority God has given me, that is prayer. It's prayer. Matthew seventeen twenty says, And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, uh, that what they said, why couldn't we cast this devil out of this, this boy? The, the man brought his son to him. 
And he said, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible for you. We, do we believe that? Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Do we believe that? Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Do we believe that? Do we spend all our time in prayer just making requests that have nothing to do with making our lives better? That's all our, so much of prayer that's prayed today is just for the purpose of making our lives better. That's all. We want our lives to be better. Are you willing for your life to be worse, worth, worse if it means that scores or hundreds or thousands of people are going to be saved? Are you willing to go through trials and tests, suffering, if it means that scores or hundreds or thousands of people aren't going to spend eternity in hell because of your witness? There was a house built on a rock. House built on sand. The same winds blew. The same rain came down. The same floods arose. One house collapsed. The other house stood. And the whole world, and it's implied, saw which one. There's no greater test than for the house of God to be tested with wind and rain and floods and stand so that the world can see it cannot intimidate us and that we believe the truth we have. And we have a relationship with the Lord that means more to us than anything and everything. Matthew 8. You all know these, but I'm reading them for context. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, verse 5, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers unto me, and I say to this one, go, and he goeth. And I say and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. No, because they wanted him to work miracles before they would believe. And this Roman Gentile army officer said, You speak the word, I know it's going to be done. I don't have to see it to believe it. I know it's going to be done. And Jesus said, go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And the man's servant was healed in the selfsame hour. At the, at the very time Jesus spoke the words, the man was, the servant was healed. Jesus never even, naturally speaking, never even saw the man. He spoke the word in one spot and it happened in another place. And we're the body of Christ. He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do? You don't think we can pray in one place and God work in another? Do you believe that? Not if you're not practicing it. Huh. Ephesians six seventeen. 
Again, we are his conduits for speaking the words of his authority, which are words of faith. They are the sword of the spirit, the rhema of God. Faith comes by hearing, Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the rhema of God. So we're speaking the words of faith, which are words of authority. Then the supernatural have great power if we just believe it. Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema of God. I'm reading again. 1 Timothy 1.18, this charge I committed unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And now listen to the end statements. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Or how about Revelation 2, 15 through 17, speaking to those at Sardis, I believe. Uh, so thou hast, uh, thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, and repent. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in the churches to him that overcometh. Will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the, in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. And then finally, here's the army coming from heaven on white horses. Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed with fine in fine linen, white and clean. And we find out earlier than chapter 19, this is talking about humans, because the, the fine linen, white and clean, is the, is the righteousness of the saints. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that hath, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he shall tread the winepress of the fiercest of the wrath of God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And finally, finally, a prophetic psalm speaking about the church. Psalms 149 and verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song. And his praise in the congregation of his saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the king, children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with a timbrel and harp. And the Lord taketh pleasure, for the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute upon them judgment written, this honor have all his saints. To bind their kings with chains and their princes with fetters of iron. So here's our purpose. 
here's our purpose. And uh, there's a few more verses here that I didn't see. So I'm going on. By the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Let's see how established this is in your life and in your local church. Psalm 16 or Matthew 16 verses 18 and 19. I read it already. Here it is again. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, three, three times, three times, three, three times, three times. Matthew 12, verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Unto you. After this manner, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or sanctified be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What are we praying for? We're praying for victory over the adversary, for his kingdom to be manifested. But if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house? and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Witness 1. Mark three twenty-seven: No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Every effort we make to get people to come to church and become members of our church that is not preceded by warfare, spiritual warfare, in prayer, binding the strong man and commanding that the captives in their house be loosed is of the flesh, done by the flesh, and God does not accept those. That's why Jesus said, every plant that your heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. So every convert that we make that's not done spiritually, that's not done supernaturally. Every appeal we make by our beautiful building, nothing wrong with having a nice building. Every appeal we make by how nice of people we are, and we sure, we should be nice people. Every appeal we make based on our, our wonderful music program, and we, we are supposed to play skillfully. And every appeal we make, come hear our awesome preaching and teaching. And our preaching needs to be awesome. And our teaching needs to be deep, powerful, and awesome. But if we're trying to get people attracted to the church through those things, we're doing it naturally and not spiritually. And we are carnal, not spiritual. And God does not claim any of our efforts. That's why you can't disciple most of those folks. That's why they're not willing to make a commitment where they put God and the kingdom of God first in their lives. That's why they want you to make things convenient for them, comfortable for them, where it all fits in their, their schedule because they're not laying down their lives for God. They want the church to lay down its expectations for them. You want me and my money, you're going to make it comfortable and convenient. And too many give in to their pressure, whether we do that consciously or subconsciously. And then finally, 
Witness number three, Luke 11, verse 20. But if I with the finger of God, notice in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, if I, but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, but he, but it's, he's quoted as in Luke 11, which is a different place. But if I, but, but if I with the finger of God cast out devils, now he's speaking figuratively of the spirit of God. No doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoil. How does that happen? By the authority of God that he gives us to bind and loose. After the 70 came back after being sent out by Jesus and they said, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. Jesus said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He said, but behold, behold, I give you King James says power, but the Greek word there's not dunamis. It's exousia or exousia, whichever one it is, which is authority. I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That promise of protection is not for those on the defensive. The whole concept of treading in warfare is being on the offensive and defeating your enemy. The question is, whose gates will prevail? Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Luke, Genesis 22, 15 through 18, I read these verses yesterday. An angel of the Lord called unto Abram out of heaven the second time and said, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, but for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee, multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sandwiches upon the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's not defensive, is it? That is a direct reference to Jesus' statement. So anybody that perverts Matthew 16, 18 to say that God has promised to protect us and hell's gates can't defeat us is perverting the word of God you say, that's pretty strong. No, it's not near strong enough. I could say it a lot stronger. It's sending people to hell because it's put the church on the defensive with a defensive mindset. And we are the army of God. How defensive of a mindset is it that when he gave us authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy? How defensive is that? How defensive is it that we have the authority to bind what on earth, what's already bound in heaven and to loose on earth, what's ever already been loosed in heaven. How defensive is that? Theologians call the church on earth, the church militant. They call the church in heaven, the church triumphant. But my question is spiritually, supernaturally, when it comes to the mission of Christ and therefore of the body of Christ, (coughs) how militant is the church on earth today? Sorry.
How militant? How militant is the church on earth today? Psalms 127, verses 3 through 5. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of thy youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. Now listen. But they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. The Hebrew word there for speak is dabar. It is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word rhema. They shall speak rhema with or against the enemies of God in the gate. That's why Isaiah says this. Isaiah beginning with verse, Isaiah 28 beginning with verse 5. In that day shall the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people and for a spirit of judgment that's to him that sitteth in judgment and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. How many of us are just out here battling to survive? Well, Brother Wright, I'm just trying to hang on. I can't do all of this. That's why you're having to battle to hang on. Because instead of being on the offensive, you're on the defensive. You can't win the game if you don't have the ball. Forgive that sports example, kind of like Paul would do. The church is not called to be on the defensive. We're given equipment to protect us on the offensive. The armor of God is protective equipment for those on the offensive. It's not a coat of armor that we stand in the corner to remind ourselves of past days of glory. No. We're supposed to put that armor on every day. Because every day is a day of conflict. Because the last, next to the last part of Matthew 6, talking about the prayer Jesus taught us to pray is, deliver us from evil. But the Greek is literally evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. What, in protecting us on the defensive? Or is it us being on the offensive and deliver the evil one into our hands? Give us victory over him. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the rhema of God. Greater is he that's within you than he that's in the world. I'm not greater than him that's in the world, but the one in here, the Lord Jesus Christ that lives in here by his spirit and his word is greater than this world. And if one can put a thousand to flight, what happens when two of us agree together? If any two of you agree on earth is touching anything, they shall have it of my father, which is in heaven. I can pray and have prayed spiritual warfare by myself. But when we come together in prayer, we don't even have to be praying the same things, but we're warring together. We agreeing in the spirit to pray, to, to fight, 
to win for the sake of the lost. Deuteronomy 20 and verse 4 says, For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. And I've read this one already. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the service of the Lord. Their righteousness of me, saith the Lord. And then how about this one? Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire nor with nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they had heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more for they could not endure that which was commanded and if so much as a beast touched the mountain it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart and so terrible is the sight that Moses said I exceedingly fear and quake but ye are come unto Mount Zion unto the city of of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the saints of just men, and the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh uh, from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now hath promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake the earth only, not not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signified the removing those things that are shaken as of the things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken shall may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is is a consuming fire. Now, finally, and this is not 30 seconds, but this is the last point. It is the will of God for the fear of the Lord to go throughout the earth. We are saved by fear. We are kept saved by the love of God. We come to him for fear of being lost. We are kept saved by the love of God. We are saved. We come to God because of the fear of God. We are kept saved by the love of God. Now, even the act of his love of Christ dying on the cross for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Even that act is fearful. It's fearful. Why? Because if God went to that extreme, how lost are all of us? If he went to that extreme to save us, then just how lost are we and this world without him? Psalms 111.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm, Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 8.12 says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Proverbs 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his people shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Let's look at the fear of the Lord and the role it plays in salvation. I have prayed these verses so many times. This verse, Proverbs 16, 6, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. It is the will of God for us to be conduits for praying upon the earth and loosing upon the earth the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty eight, Fear not them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that can kill the body, and afterward have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Here's a description of this world today and the lost condition of man. Romans 3, beginning with verse 9, verse 9, Romans 3, 9. And what then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin, un, under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. And finally, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The final and most damning condition of the lost of this world that proves they cannot save themselves by good works is there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 28, 29 says, Wherefore, we we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. In Hebrews ten twenty six, for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which de- shall devour, devour the adversaries, the enemies of the body of Christ and therefore of Christ. He that despised, that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy? 
who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And then he closed that chapter with, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing. And quickly, just looking at this as I'm almost done. Look at the role that the fear of the Lord played in the early church's revival and harvest. Acts 2, 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. But the first thing that happened was, and fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter said, But Peter said, Ananias, why had Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart that thou hast that thou hast not, not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing that what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, carrying her forth buried her by her husband and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things and listen to the next step next verse and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people and they were all with one accord in solomon's porch and of the durst of the rest durst no man join himself to them but the people magnify them and believers were more added to the lord Multitudes, both men and women, because the fear of the Lord came upon them and then signs and wonders were done to confirm the word of God. What kind of signs and wonders? Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about under Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Acts 9 verse 31 then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord first and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. We want comfort from the Holy Ghost and ignore the fear of the Lord. It is time for the church to pray until the, fe the fear of the Lord come upon this world, upon the church first upon the backslider upon the sinner upon this world
so that the fear of the Lord will cause them to depart from iniquity or evil. Praise God. Praise God. Hebrews 11 and 7 says this, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. His faith produced fear. Why? He believed what God said. He believed there was coming a flood. He acted by faith, but it was fear that moved him because he believed what God said. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. He didn't build the ark to condemn the world, but his faith in God's word and doing what God said became evidence against the world. And it justified and, and provided the, the preponderance of evidence needed for God to justify to himself as the, a, a righteous God, a just and merciful God, a loving God, to pour out his wrath on the entire world and destroy every human except eight. Again, Proverbs sixteen six: By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And finally, last scriptures, Jude 1, 22 through 25. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Some have gone so far from preaching the word of God that they never preach about hell anymore. They never hear, preach about judgment. They never preach about the consequences of sin. All they want to do is preach the love of God. Well, the love of God gave the son of God to die in our place so that we would not perish. But if we don't believe the son of God, according to the word of God, we will perish. So if you preach the word of God without the consequences, the love of God, without preaching the consequences of not letting God love you and of letting that love change you, then you're preaching a false doctrine. You're preaching a lie and you're making merchandise of men's souls for your own gain. Because we want our reputation increased by the size of our crowd. And we want our bank account increased by the income that comes in from that crowd. I can't preach the love of God without preaching the consequences of rejecting that love. First <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 16 verse 22, I think it is, says... If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. The Lord cometh. The King James says, let him be anathema, Maranatha. Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Maranatha, the Lord cometh. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be cursed because the Lord is coming. You and I stand between them and hell. 
and we can't reach them just by preaching the love of God and God loves you so much it's all okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. Because if we don't believe the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, and we don't preach that we need to obey the gospel, the Bible says, First, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, God is coming to inflaming fire to take vengeance on those that have not obeyed the gospel. And the gospel is the love of God expressed because it's by the love of God that he was, he died, was buried and rose again. And we need to obey the gospel by dying to our sins through repentance and by being buried with him in the waters of baptism. Romans chapter six, verse three, four. And rising again, being resurrected from the dead to walk in newness of life by receiving of his spirit, which will raise us from the dead, the same spirit. Romans eight and verse 11. The same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken our mortal bodies and raise us from the dead. First of all, to raise us from the dead spiritually. And then at the proper time, at God's time, raise us from the dead naturally. Same spirit. But are we preaching? Are we praying the word of God today? Are we praying the will of God today? Are we praying out of love for the spirit of the fear of the Lord to come on upon this earth to be manifested to this earth so that by the fear of the Lord, men will depart from evil or are we tickling ears and patting backs, telling people it's okay. Just as long as you come to church and put your offering in ties in and offering in and just, just live, be a good person, live a good life. And, and, uh, Follow the teachings of the church. You're all okay. Lie from the pits of hell. Are those things important? Yes. Are they what? Are they the definition of what being a Christian is all about? Ten thousand times no. 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 Taking a couple of verses that expresses that we should come together as the body of Christ and making that the main focus of the church, just us getting together, having a good church service, going through our liturgy, dot the I's across the T of our expectation, whether it's written down as liturgy or it's just our custom. We've done so much that it's become our liturgy. And then the rest of the time we run our own life, make our own decisions And if we pray and consider ourselves spiritual because we pray, all of our prayers focused on God, getting God to make our lives better here. No place in the Bible, that's promised. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. He didn't say everything was good. He said all of it would work for good to those that love God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, greatest commandment. And to love his purpose. And what is his purpose? His purpose was to come to seek and save that which was lost. And if that was the purpose of Christ when he was on the earth, 
It is the only purpose of the body of Christ on earth today. Everything else is secondary to that. Everything else is secondary. And everything else is secondary to prayers prayed for that to occur and take place. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I loose the spirit of wisdom and revelation of these things upon you and I, that the spirit of God would shine the light of the word of God into our lives and impart to us the understanding of these things so that we would embrace them and they would become a part of our lives and that we would submit ourselves to God, that he might live these things through us, that he might do these things through us to the glory of his name, to the furtherance of his kingdom, and that his will, as it's already purposed in heaven, would come to be in the earth. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God bless you. And hopefully, I will see you tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. God bless you in Jesus' name.